0: Hey everybody, and welcome to another quick episode of Compliant with Alliant. I'm Christine Blanco, uh, Director of Compliance at Alliant Employee Benefits, and I'm Diana Craig. And we're here back again to uh, for part two of the Appropriations Act podcast, because part one wasn't
1: enough. Um, Actually, it was going to just be one giant podcast, and then Diana I would, wouldn't stop talking. I, I was talking too much, <laughs> and I wasn't making eye contact. And it
0: was so Chris just shut it down. I shut it down. So we figured you probably need to digest this in smaller bits. So we took the first episode and focused on some quickly upcoming group health plan mandates that are going to be really impactful. Um, in the short term and likely require engagement with carriers. And now we're gonna shift to what I consider to be a little bit of a different bucket, which is largely about sort of transparency and making sure the participant understands costs. And this is again, a trend that we've seen under um, the administration here and we are likely to see in the future. Um, that sort of healthcare is generally moving towards greater transparency and so there were, um, I just want to level set, there was transparency provisions in the Appropriation Act that I'm going to talk about, there's something called the No Surprises Act, which Diana's going to talk about but then it also requires us to back up to a final rule that was issued I think in late October of this year Um, that's a transparency rule that will also sort of dovetail with some of these Appropriation Act transparency provisions so with that I'm going to turn to you. What? You have well, to say? I, I'm just saying, we, we've been watching
1: this trend for a long time, wanting more transparency on every facet of how healthcare is delivered in this country. And in our last episode, we talked about pharmacy benefits disclosures, which has been a big topic for a lot of years. And um, I was just actually happy to see that the Appropriations Act finally address surprise billing. I get that question every couple of months. Has Congress done anything on surprise billing? What's happening on surprise billing? Finally, something happened. Yeah, so why don't you tell us a little bit about
0: surprise billing? Oh,
1: I guess that was a good introduction to the Mm -hmm. No Surprises Act. Yes. Okay, so again, flipping through the 5,600 pages of the Appropriations Act, uh, we came across something called the No Surprises Act. And um, it's not really right around the corner. It's going to generally apply for plan years beginning in 2022. And um, here's where I was a a little bit disappointed. It has a narrower scope than many of us wanted. So it applies to emergency services. Non-emergency services provided at an in-network facility by an out-of-network provider, and air ambulance services. So again, these are the kind of the big three culprits, but we see surprise billing in a lot of other contexts. So this is probably a, a first step. Um, Air ambulance was really kind of how surprise billing made it to the right. forefront, where people just didn't understand the cost of that service. And then we also saw a lot of it where someone would go in for a routine procedure, and then lo and behold, the anesthesiologist, who you didn't even have a choice on, was out of network, and you get a $20,000 balance bill. Exactly. So there there was a lot... Um, to do here and there's been there's been some state activity in this space as well yeah and and actually the appropriations act addresses that or specifically the no surprises act within the appropriations act addresses that so if you are in um a state with an insurance code provision that prohibits balance billing and that would be for insured plans generally situs Mm -hmm. in that state um, those are generally going to be more protective, and those will govern. But we know that those don't reach a lot of plans. Um, so many plans are self-funded and aren't really touched by those state insurance code provisions or protections. So this is really where this is going to um, sort of step in and, and fill the bill and multi-state group health plans. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And and we know there's a need there because we've we've heard it. It's been on the news. It's been everywhere. The most important thing to me as I went through this act was they have some pretty clear definitions where they define a participating provider or facility is someone where your plan has a direct or indirect contractual relationship where there is an agreed fee for the service provided where there will not be balance billing. And Chris is going to talk about the final transparency rule, same concept there. Not surprisingly, the non-participating provider or facility is one where there isn't a contractual relationship where you know the cost. So there can be balanced billing. So when we talk about these things, we're really talking about in-network and out-of-network and just you know file away that if, if you don't have a contracted network, big surprise, everything's out-of-network. Um, when we go through and look at the No Surprises Act, and we look at those covered services, so again, the air ambulance, emergency, non-participating provider at a participating facility, a set of rules apply to all of those, and they're not overly complicated. It's basically four rules, Uh, so you can't have requirements or limitations on that coverage that are more restrictive than if the service was provided by a participating provider the cost-sharing can't be greater than if the services were provided at a participating provider or facility. Cost-sharing has to be calculated as if the total amount that would have been charged by a participating provider or facility was equal to, and I'm making air quotes, the recognized amount for services, and they have a lot of sort of circular definitions there, but there's something called a qualifying payment, or if there, if it's applicable, there's a state-mandated rate, And a qualifying payment is going to be generally the median of your contracted rates. Uh, And there is more to that, but I I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole because hopefully uh, most of you guys won't need to know how to do that math. So lastly, and this one's big, any participant cost sharing has to be applied towards any plan deductible or out-of-pocket maximum. So those are the basic rules. And so... um, When we look at how this breaks down in the real world, you know, you go to um, have an emergency service or an air ambulance or something like that happens. The plan is gonna get a bill for that. Um, You, as the plan, have to issue a denial or make an initial payment within 30 days if there is any disagreement, there is a fairly complex and completely binding new independent dispute resolution process. This is not subject to judicial review absent a showing of fraud. So this is going to be binding.
0: Yeah, it stays in there, it doesn't go
1: to the court. So after you initiate that process, um, something called open negotiations happen. And this stuff happens fast. You got 30 days to resolve things. And um, where there is no resolution, you initiate independent review. And if you can't re- agree on an independent re- dispute resolution entity, the secretary of HHS or labor will pick one for
0: you. So the principal's office will tell you what to do. This
1: is happening whether you like it or not. So 10 days after that entity gets selected, Each party submits its offer, and this should generally for the plan be the qualifying payment. You can, um, each party can sort of put in some additional factors, but they've been very clear that um, an IDR entity is precluded from considering any amount that would have been paid by a public provider, specifically a Medicare rate. So if you have a plan that uh, wants to pay 120% of Medicare, they can't even look at that or consider that. So uh, that IDR entity is going to make a determination again within 30 days. So this isn't going to get dragged out and it isn't going to go to the courts and then you had better make that payment. So I mean, that that's kind of in a nutshell. Um, what the No Surprises Act does. Just remember what those covered services are. Know that uh, there is a process here now that is going to govern, and it's going to be binding, and it's going to move quick.
0: And it's that's likely going to happen You know, from a pragmatic standpoint, right? Your vendors and your TPAs and, and happening sort of behind the scenes as you're doing your day-to-day operation. This isn't anything you're going to have to manage, much like the other dispute resolution provisions, but um, but you have to know it's there and it's a requirement and your partners need to be ready to go with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's something where, like, when we look at um, ERISA claims and appeals, a lot of us don't know every step of the process there, but what's important to know about it is that there is a process and it is rigid, and uh, here it is binding. So they have really closed the door on even judicial review.
0: Yeah. And and again, remember, this is a subset. This is, you know, emergency and then facilities that are in-network or out-of-network providers providing care. Okay. So time to switch over to me? Go for it. Okay. All right. So I'm I'm sitting here looking at this information and trying to figure out the best way to tackle it, and I've I've decided that it's kind of two different buckets. I want to talk about um, in and out-of-network and sort of cost-sharing information that has to be available. And some of that is in the Appropriations Act. Some of that is in the final transparency regulations. And then I'm going to talk about sort of these tools and um, and networks that, that or that these um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A uh, directories that need to be available. The sort of public information that needs to be available um, as it relates to your plan. So. The Appropriations Act, and I'm going to do it largely by date, um, requires that group health plans provide in very clear writing and any insurance ID card that you have or any such document, any deductible applicable to the plan, any out-of-pocket maximum limits, and then a contact information where the participant can seek assistance. So that's going to be right there on those you know, key pieces of information that you're distributing to your plan participants. So you'll wanna to talk to your partners about that. Second is what is you know, generally being referred to in it as an advanced explanation of benefits. Many of you are probably familiar with what an EOB looks like. This is something they're, they're calling an advanced explanation of benefits. And for plan years beginning on or after January 1, 2022, that also applies to the insurance card component, um, group health plans are required to provide to participants or providers upon request an advance EOB with a number uh, with cost estimates and a host of other information within a very prescriptive time frame. And I want to talk about what that information is. But the way I see this, and again, this is sort of my initial cut at this is you know, your participants may not be scheduling like a knee replacement and ask you in advance, but when they go to the doctor, there's pre-authorization calls made almost all of the time right where the doctor calls the plan to understand what coverages are in place and then the plan should be prepared to provide this kind of information in this format in advance is the way i see this operating based on my read of the statute i'm not entirely sure but that's how i see this sort of playing out and so that information the information required in this sort of advanced eob is your participating provider's contracted rate for your out-of-network folks? Information on how to get to an in-network provider, a good-faith estimate from this particular provider on you know what they're going to pay or what the going to what the cost is going to be, um, what the plan is going to cover from that cost, what the member is going to have to pay, and cost sharing, and any de- deductible or OOPs that have already been met by that particular participant, any medical management. Um, a disclaimer that it's only a good faith estimate, and any other valid disclaimers that the plan may deem appropriate. So it's a lot of information. Again, you know, US HR and benefits departments are not gonna be sitting there drawing up a template advanced EOB. It's gonna be something that your partners and that your vendors, your TPAs are working on, but this is a really an important component or a really good example of why you want key, good vendors who are nimble and can react to this and have a plan in place for you and your group health plan to be able to comply one of the things i've always said about vendor partners
1: is they really should be prepared to provide you with a statement of compliance Um, and i've always kind of joked as the health and welfare plan arena has been more and more regulated that this might be the end of the mom and pop tpa but i think when we're seeing so many of these provisions just layering on top of each other it really might be the end of the mom and pop
0: tpa it might be who knows i mean i think you know that's been happening slowly and surely um, for a long time. And I think it's important too because in, in the market it can get very mixed up because you know we offer the group health plan, but the, you know the pragmatic um, you know, day-to-day lift so much is delegated to vendors. But in the end, these provisions impact you as the employer group health plan sponsor. you're liable. So it, it behooves you and the onus is on you to make sure you understand. even if your vendors say, no, this doesn't we, we think this doesn't apply. okay, fine. You know, let's let's just make sure, or, or we'll take you know, get a statement of compliance to Diana's point. So I think these two transparency requirements, this out-of-network, um, the deductible, in-and-out-of-network deductible, and out-of-pocket information that goes on the card, as well as well as this advanced EOB, dovetail with the final transparency regulations that were issued in October, which also require disclosure of cost-sharing information to enrollees upon request and also to the public and so and by way of like a website and and again you know we'll see how this um this plays out this isn't required until a little bit later um items so uh, beginning in 2024 but these will dovetail so that required disclosure upon request would have, again, the estimated cost share liability, any anything they've paid to date, so the accumulated out-of-pockets to date for that individual, what the in-network and out-of-network allowed amounts are, um, any prerequisites to coverage and, and a disclosure notice um, on any out-of-network balance billing, any actual cost sharing, um, those sorts of issues, which, to my mind, dovetail very much with um, the advanced EOB requirements. So we'll see how pragmatically those two things work. One of the things that I think is interesting about those transparency
1: final regulations is making that information publicly available It's right. going to be significant because I think providers as they are getting a pre-author, whatever else, we know there's going to be information that moves to them under the Transparency Provisions of the Appropriations Act. But if I was a, a smart provider, would check that publicly available information too.
0: Right, and the way the the way the regs read is that you, the plan must publicly post three machine-readable files on this information so that that information is accessible. And I think to Diana's point... Um, where you may not have participants readily requesting that information when they go in to be treated, this is an easy way for providers to check in advance what the plan may be reimbursing. So again, this is a little bit on down the road, but it kind of dovetails with this advanced DOB insurance card just really kind of flooding the, the stakeholders with more information about what may be paid by the plan for the particular service. So moving away from that into more of these sort of directories and tools, the Appropriations Act also requires a group health plan to offer a price comparison guidance by telephone and on their website that allows uh, the participants to compare the amount of cost sharing between two providers. So again, you know, giving pro- uh, participants the information they need to make informed decisions about how they seek care in addition to that, a provider directory information. So you have to effective, you know, group health plans beginning on or after 1122 maintain and provide current information on their network. So establish a process to verify what does your provider directory information say at least every 90 days, and that it's accurate, so that folks can easily access: Is this person in or out of network? What does this mean? Um, on as part of that provider directory, you're required to also include information about federal and applicable state law prohibitions on balance billing. So if you're in a state that doesn't allow balance billing, your folks need to know that. And contact information for the state and federal agencies. A a key component on this and an incentive for you to keep it up to date is that a a participant who then relies on that directory. And if it's inaccurate and it's billed In a way uh, that 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 individual that participant relied on, they are only responsible for the in-network component of that, and any additional cost would be paid by the plan. So, um, this again is. A, a, a pretty heavy lift for the plan likely to come and should come from your vendors but you need to be aware of it because the onus is on you and it will come out of the plans costs if that directory is not maintained so um, those are the key transparency provisions again we have um, written up those in detail in separate alerts that are available um, to you guys online and I'm trying to think um i think that covers the appropriations act at this point we've we've i think beat it to a bloody pulp um the takeaways are that quickly and fairly quietly we saw a host of group health plan mandates kind of wedge their way in here at the end of this year and at the end of an administration where um you know there wasn't a ton of change other than aca stuff in the beginning and so Um, You need to be engaged with your vendors and um, your advisors on what's coming and how are you going to be impacted from an administrative standpoint and a cost perspective and also how you need to be communicating with your participants. So, what am I missing? Well,
1: I mean, I think just never be afraid to ask a vendor for a formal statement of compliance. And if they don't have one or they produce one that looks really sketchy, it, it might be time to reconsider the partnership.
0: Most definitely. All right. Well, Thank you very much. We, um, we plan to be um, back with you more regularly as we see what, you know, the next 12 months has in store for group health plans. Thanks and stay well.